you have your Bibles, take and turn to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. And on the back of your sermon outline is also our text. If you don't have one, I'm sure one of the ushers will be glad to get you a bulletin and a sermon outline. And we are in this 13th and final chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and it is a very discouraging time. We have three more weeks in our study. And you recall Nehemiah is returning for his second stint as governor over Judah and Jerusalem, and he is upset. We started this last week, and now another problem raises its head. Listen, starting in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So far the reading of God's Word. And... It is Father's Day. I, I was out before anyone in the family had the opportunity to give me a gift. Uh, but I'm sure when I get home, there will be presents piled high and wonderfully wrapped. And, uh, and I don't know if you've received yours yet, but have you ever opened your Father's Day gift and you said out loud, that's just what I needed? Or did you get one of those goofy ties? Um, but... You know, God gives great gifts, the Bible says. When God gives a gift to His people, they always, if they are sane, will say, that's just what I needed. And as Christine read to us from the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus makes this extraordinary announcement that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And their eyes must have gotten big. 
He also said, did you catch it? That the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. But apparently God has given a gift to his people. Handmade, specially made. For you and you and you and you. Have you learned how to delight in it? We come back to this to this subject because here in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, the final chapter as we're preaching through it, um, we're, we are reminded of what the people covenanted before God back in chapter 10. Remember that? They read the law. They, they heard the Ten Commandments. They heard this commandment and the many discussions of the Sabbath. And, and they promised. Remember? They promised. And they said... Um, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Well, what happens? What happened, just like last week, is they drifted. They drifted in their spiritual life. Last week we saw they drifted in, in terms of their finances, right? God was no longer the Lord of their money. Yeah, maybe he could be Lord of my worship time, but not of my wallet. My wallet is mine. It's my money. I made it. And Nehemiah had to teach them again to be generous, to care for the poor, to support the ministry. And they did. But they drifted not just there. Apparently, they're drifting in all areas of their spiritual life. And so now it appears to Nehemiah that God is no longer Lord of their time. And we're told that businessmen are bringing in their stuff to sell into Jerusalem. Jews and pagans, the Tyrians as well. So where does he turn to address the problem? It's interesting because once again he says, you know, this is a problem of leadership. So I have to preach to myself here today, to the elders and to the deacons and to the Sunday school teachers and to the home fellowship group leaders. This is apparently a leadership problem. And so uh, in verse 17 he says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? And their minds in this time of instruction would go back to the book of Exodus. Now, there's lots of passages in the Old Testament that speak about this, but I just put a few in your, in your program this morning. The first was read from Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock, um, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." And it's very interesting, a few chapters later, listen to this from Exodus 23. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. 
And a few chapters later, Exodus 31, 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, must be important, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, those people drifted. It's kind of hard for me to preach about this to you because you're here. <laughs> Congratulations. Praise the Lord. It's great that you're here. Shouldn't we just be preaching to all those people who should be filling the rest of the seats who aren't here today? This morning, I'm just, well, I'm just preaching to the choir. And yet, and yet, this passage is teaching us about the danger of drifting and all of us, all of us need to beware of how easy it is to drift and to compromise and to be like the world because the world is tugging at us all the time at every corner. Be like us. And the people of God are clearly called to be distinct from the world. So it's good that you're here, but beware. You can drift. Well, apparently they had drifted and Nehemiah confronts them. And I can imagine some of these businessmen saying, Okay, 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 Nehemiah, but <laughs> look at all these shekels that I made on the Sabbath. Wow. You know, I could only work six days, but by working the seventh, look at the revenue that came in. So Nehemiah, explain to me the benefit of giving up that cash. Why did God give us this gift, Nehemiah? What good does it do for me? And I think Nehemiah would have said what the many commentators I read this week, you know, and, and oh, how, how much has been written on this uh, interesting and, and complex subject. I read Meredith Klein and Joachim Dumas and, uh, and uh, John Calvin. And they all say, well, if you're going to understand it, you've got to go back to the Bible, right? Back to these very texts. And what would Nehemiah say to persuade these businessmen to keep the Sabbath? Well, he would turn to Exodus 23:12, and he would say, listen, you guys, are you on the hamster wheel? Are you in the rat race? Are you stuck in traffic on the LIE every single day? Is your Blackberry filled to overflowing? It says in, Nehemiah, in Exodus 23.12 that he gave the Sabbath that the people might be, did you catch the word? Refreshed. Refreshed. And I tell you something. If you're on that hamster wheel, and if you're in the rat race, do you know that you cannot keep that up nonstop, interminably, forever and ever? People have tried to do that. And they work hard, and then they go on vacations, and they play hard, and they return from vacation exhausted. And the vacation didn't do them any good. But the Sabbath, Nehemiah would say, was to refresh you. And then he would say, and while we're at it, did you hear what was said about the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment of the Ten? And it says that the Sabbath 
was to link you to your Creator and to instill in you the rhythm of creation. That was how uh, Moses explained this commandment. Very interesting. He says, here's why you keep the Sabbath holy, because God did it. And when you keep the Sabbath, in some way you are linked as the creature back to the Creator. This most fundamental distinction that you have to understand in life. There's nothing more basic than what we call the Creator-Creature relationship. He is God. You are not. He made you. He designed you. And we are now told that in creation there is a rhythm that God Himself established. And when you keep the Sabbath, when you have Sabbath in your life, you are reflecting, you are in sync with the creation that God made. And that sounds pretty good. Not only are you refreshed, but now you're in sync with the universe that God has made and the Creator who is enthroned. Remember, He wasn't pooped. He wasn't tired when He uh, sat down. He was enthroned. And you are linked to your Creator again. And then Nehemiah would say to these businessmen, he would say, and you know, remember the Ten Commandments were given twice. They're not only in Exodus, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Did you know that? And it's really interesting that the fourth commandment is explained differently in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Hmm. In Exodus, it's all about relating to the Creator. But listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 5, uh, uh, in verse 15, he says, You shall keep the Sabbath holy and remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And what he's saying here is that when you are rightly connected with God, being refreshed, you also remember your redemption, your salvation, your deliverance. And so you connect with God as Creator and Redeemer when you practice the Sabbath. Sounds pretty good. And that's why Isaiah 58 calls it a delight. A delight and not a burden. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me, but whatever you, however you are understanding the Sabbath, Please understand that God gave you a special gift and the gift is to refresh you and connect you to your Creator and to your Redeemer who delivered you from slavery. Okay? Are you with me on this? Now, point number two is how should we understand and apply this Sabbath principle today? Because just as we read earlier in the service, there were these collisions, boom, with Christ and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And the church through the centuries has often had vigorous disagreements about how we understand this. And Jesus apparently collided with the Pharisees not because he didn't observe the Sabbath, but because the Pharisees had distorted it. And they had all these man-made rules uh, that they were uh, using to, to bind the consciences of the people. And here's what they did, and I'm quoting from uh, this man I mentioned, Joachim Dumas, and he writes this. He says, if you were hungry in that time of Jesus, 
You could no longer satisfy the ache in your stomach on the Sabbath by plucking heads of grain and in the grain field because then you would be guilty of harvesting and threshing the crops. Or if you healed a man on the Sabbath like Jesus did, you were condemned by those Pharisees because you were performing work that could have waited until the next day. Or somebody who picks up his mat, you know, and carries it after he's been healed. He was crippled. Now he's healed and he picks up his mat and he starts walking with him. They rebuke him and they said, you, this, this is an outrage because you're carrying a burden. And Jesus condemns this, right? And he tells us again, this is a gift. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is not teaching us here that Nehemiah got it wrong back in his day. What Jesus is simply saying is that there needs to be that celebration in your life of God and of your, your redemption and of your Creator that actually refreshes you. But I know some of you have read your New Testament and you're scratching your head a little bit and you're saying, well, but did, did nothing change with the coming of Christ? And that, of course, is an enormously wonderful and complex question that has been debated and discussed, written about for centuries. And I want to tell you that the best way to understand the developments in the New Covenant is to understand what the New Testament calls the movement or the development from shadow to substance. Okay? Shadow to substance. And we learn about this in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where the festivals, the days of celebration, the ceremonial laws are called a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And here's what we learn here. We learn that the Old Testament, Old Covenant shadows are related to the real substance of Jesus. That's what shadows do. Shadows outline something. You shine a spotlight, and, and we wish I had thought to put that up, and the shadow outlines, gives you a general outline of the real thing, okay? And so, again, Jacques M. Duma writes this. Listen. Just as the shadow indicates the outline of the reality, that's what shadows do, so Christ was already visible in the ceremonies and commandments of the Old Testament, but now that He has come, the reality is here. We don't travel the old paths of circumcision and ceremonial observances like the Passover in the same way. And He explains this. I want you to get this. Christ, He says, is the fulfillment of circumcision. That was an Old Testament sacrifice, and he says that shadow has disappeared. But, precisely because it's moved to the substance, something else replaced the Old Testament sacrament. Something else which, just like circumcision, marks you as you come into the covenant community and signifies and seals that you belong to God. And what is that in the New Covenant? What is that? Baptism. Baptism. 
replaces circumcision. Well, what about the Passover that they were absolutely bound to keep? 2 Corinthians says, Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. And you remember that where the judgment of God, boom, falls on sin. But the people of God are covered and protected by what? The blood of the Lamb. And that shadow of Passover that they celebrated every year has disappeared. But because the shadow signifies the greater reality, something else replaces the Old Testament sacrament, which shows us that the blood shed for the people of God covers them through the judgment. And what just might that be? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the the, the binding sacrament that is, obligates the believer. And so we celebrate that with great joy, don't we? And then Duma says, Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That seventh-day shadow, too, has disappeared, but in its place, something else will arise, which, just like the seventh-day Jewish Sabbath, commemorates liberation from bondage by a Redeemer and our connection to the enthroned Creator on high. What is he saying? He's saying that this special sign was showing forth the substance, and now that Christ has appeared, something else has come. The shadows of circumcision, the shadows of Passover, the Sabbath made room for the signs of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and now what we read about in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Christian Sabbath. The Lord's Day. Sunday. The first day of the week. And we too are taught in the New Covenant that God is Lord of our time. God is to regulate our time. One of my seminary classmates, Stan Gale, has a blog that I like to look at. On it, he writes this, Time is a precious commodity. What Long Islander would not shake their head with that? Time is a precious commodity. The Sabbath harnesses time. How often have we heard, he writes, how often have we heard someone say, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to gather with the people of God. I don't have time to sing praises to the Lord. And Stan Gell writes, God has given a gift-wrapped block of time for us. And Sabbath practice falls under the best-use category. You executives here, what is best use in your business? This Sabbath idea that Jesus says is made for you is a best-use category to function as a sign that connects you to God. And you know what? It is a sign. It is a sign. Exodus 31, 13. Did you hear that in the Scripture reading? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign. How is it a sign? First thing, that when you worship the Lord on the Lord's day, and you work in this rhythm, it's a sign to other people. That's right. It's a sign to the people who know you that your allegiance is to God. 
It's a beautiful witness in a world that says, why do you get out of bed early on a Sunday morning? In a world that says, why aren't you home watching the TV shows, watching cartoons, letting your kids run all over the creation on soccer fields and, and, and doing little dance recitals? Why, why are you here? And you say, by virtue of your presence, I have an allegiance to my Creator and my Redeemer. And it means something to me. It really means something to me. They say, really? And you say, yeah. It really does. Second reason it's a si- way it's a sign it's a, is that it's a sign to God. It's a sign to God of your faith in Him. It's just a way for you to say back to the Lord, you are my Creator. You are my Redeemer. And these are my people. And I'm really glad, Lord. It's a sign of your faith. But ultimately, for the Christian, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For on the first day of the week, not the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, He rose from the dead. And the church has gathered on this day since that resurrection and declared, He is risen. He is risen from the dead. Christ rules on high. And He is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. And I worship Him. So the Sabbath is the sign of the resurrection. And we see that illustrated in Acts chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 1. Now listen, I'm not about to give you a list of do's and don'ts. In fact, our presbytery has passed a resolution that says that uh, we don't legislate it, the, the rules of do's and don'ts. But, But we do need to think and come to grips with what it means When we wake up on a Sunday, what does it mean for us? Have you come to grips with it? Have you really thought about it? Today, this is your day to think about it. If you've had the screensaver up, bring the screensaver down because now is the time for you to think about what it means when Sunday morning comes. And the first thing I want to say is what uh, Tim Keller says when he reminds us that the Sabbath is more than just stopping work. I like what he says. He writes, God liberated his people when they were slaves in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 tells us this. And anybody who overworks is really a slave. That's what he says. Anybody who overworks is really a slave. Anybody who cannot rest from work is a slave to their need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitative employers, to parental expectations. Some of us are so driven because we are desperate to please our fathers. You know, you need to talk to your therapist about this. You are so driven that you can't stop. And Keller says the Sabbath is a declaration of freedom, that you are free. And it's not just external rest for your body, but it's internal rest for your soul. Jesus will give you the rest that your boss never will. Okay? Second thing. God's Word, prayer, the singing of praises are central 
to what it means to engage your Creator and Redeemer on the Christian Sabbath. Critical. This, my friends, is what we come to study. This is why we have Sunday school. We have Sunday school because, not because some people want to keep busy. We have Sunday school to open the Bible together and say, what does God's Word say to us? And we teach our children from early ages, give attention to the Word of God. They used to call it Sabbath school, I guess, didn't they? And then, why do you think our vocalists, our, our, our singers, got up extra early while some of you were still asleep and they're here rehearsing to sing? Why? Why would they do that? I'll tell you why. Because they know. They're not here to perform. They are here to assist. They all know it, too. No performers. They are here to assist you in giving your heart to your Creator, in giving your heart to your Redeemer, and feeling the refreshment that comes into your soul. That's why they do it. Praise. You can't live without praise. You can't. You've got to praise your Creator. You've got to praise your Redeemer. And we're doing our best. We're doing our best. Sorry if it's not as good as you'd like. We're doing our best to assist you in the praise of your Lord. And I'm going to quote Tim Keller again, how you come to grips with this, this Christian Sabbath. He says, don't mortgage your souls to work. And to the children and the young people, don't mortgage your souls to play. Don't mortgage your souls to work. In the rhythm that God has given, Keller says this, I love this phrase, there is the deliberate limitation of productivity as a way to trust God and to declare your freedom from slavery. I'll say that again. It is actually the deliberate, deliberate limitation of productivity as a way to trust God. Students, I remember when I was in college, I was a new Christian. And uh, Skip Ryan was discipling me, and he said to me, John, let's talk about what you do on Sundays. And I said, oh, Sunday is all about getting ready for Monday. And he said to me, well, I'd like you to consider not studying on Sunday. Instead, you study on Saturday. And you know what I said to him? I said, but Saturday's my day off. And he said, no, Sunday's your day off. The first day of the week. He said, Sunday is your day off. So you study on Saturdays. You get your labor done on Saturday. And then be free on the Lord's Day to come and worship and to hang with the people of God and to enjoy fellowship and to grow in your relationship with God. I never forgot that. And you know, I practiced that. I actually practiced it. I realize there are times when doctors are on call and they've got to go heal. I realize that there are people who need to keep the electricity running and, and you know, we could debate all kinds of stuff about what is necessary to do. But here's the point. Don't mortgage your soul to your work or your play at the expense of your relationship with God. And then, and this is right from my heart, if I have nothing else to say to you today, it's this. 
on Sundays, you not only remember Christ, but on Sundays, you actually come to Christ. For Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what's the next word? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. And so when you come through these doors, you are not just going to church. You're not. Get that out of your nomenclature. You are coming to Christ. And you encounter Jesus in the assembly of the saints. It says in Hebrews 12, you are actually going to the mountain of the Lord in the heavenly Jerusalem where the invisible worshiping universe is celebrating the Creator and the Redeemer. And you are coming to Christ. You know, the next six days of your week are hard. There's a lot of stress in your life. Other people's expectations and there's restlessness, and there's frustration, and there's the battle with sin, right? Battle with sin, and there's, there's pain, personal pain, psychological pain. Some of us, physical sickness and pain, the loss of loved ones, the relentless approach of our own old age and our eventual death. So every Sunday... The Lord speaks to you of your rest in heaven, your heavenly rest. And have you ever read in Revelation 14, 13? Listen to this. Listen. Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they will... What's the next word? Rest from their labors. Now we know that heaven is dynamic, but we know that heaven is the rest from all the stinking sin and sorrows and tears and pain and dying. Heaven is the rest from it all. And every time you step together with us, you taste heaven. You taste heaven with Jesus. You taste being with the Lord forever and ever. We sang that song, I long to be where the praise is never ending. Yearn to dwell where the praises never end. And that's what we do when we rest in Jesus. When Bach and Mozart wrote their requiems. The most beautiful part of the requiem, I think, is always that Pia Jesu section. Pia Jesu Dona Ace Requiem. Pious Jesus, give them rest. Give them everlasting rest. And this is the gift that Jesus gives to you. Will you take it? Will you rest in Jesus? Not just on Sundays, but every day. Rest in Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord,
We thank you for this gift, and we unwrap it today. And we just delight in being in your presence with your people. Receive now our praises. Receive now our thanksgiving. Receive now our hearts as we signify to each other and to you that we love you, our Creator, and we love you, our Redeemer. And we thank you for this gift of the Lord's day. Help us and help us as a church family to keep this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.